Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole Nussbaumer Nafflick. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hi, this is Cole. Thanks for tuning in. I am joined today by the newest member of the Storytelling with Data team, Simon Rowe. Simon, thanks for being here today. Thank you. It's, I mean, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. It's very surreal having flown in from America just on Sunday to spend a couple of days in Milwaukee, a couple of days in Chicago, and now be here where the podcast happened. It's fantastic. Yeah. So as those listening might be able to tell, Simon is from the United Kingdom. London to be specific. But as we record this, he is actually sitting across from me in person at Storytelling with Data Headquarters in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I think you've been to the Midwest before, but is this your first time in Milwaukee? It is. It's one of the states I didn't get to do. I did a three-month trip across America and I covered, I think, around 42 states. Oh, wow. And Wisconsin was one of the ones I didn't get to cover. So ticked off the list as well. So really good. Simon has just wrapped up an intensive eight weeks of onboarding and is here in the Midwest getting some in-person time with some of the team and also co-facilitating some client workshops. Now, Simon, I recall us early on having a conversation on some of the different ways that you were excited about sharing content. And you seemed especially intrigued by the idea of recording a podcast. So fast forward a couple of months and here we are. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation today. Our topic is how to become a trusted advisor as an analyst or as an analytics team. Simon has great depth of experience here from his career up to this point in financial services. We'll share more about that through our chat. But to kick things off, Simon, I think you have a story for us. I do. And this story takes me back say about four years to 2018 when I was working in the bank I was with. And it was a large project that was currently being undertaken. And we were part of this project, a number of different teams, a number of different stakeholders, and it had a number of different client, direct client impacts. So our role within the project was to analyze and track the clients through the various movements, the stages of, of the project, the transitions they were going through. And it didn't start out too well. We sort of lost track of where some of the clients were. So that meant we had the possible jeopardy of telling clients they were in the wrong stage or making sure that clients were at the end of the transition where they weren't really, they were at the beginning. Stakeholders got a little nervous at this stage, wondering whether or not we had a good handle on what was going on. So at that point, my boss came to me and said, Simon, can you just step in? and oversee this from our team's perspective. So I said, yes, happily, uh, as long as I can do a couple of things. I wanted to clear my diary, clear my schedule. I had other responsibilities, but I felt this was a really important one to just clear the decks to make sure that I had sole focus on this. The second thing was I did nothing. I went upstairs, I sat with the team, and I just observed. So I didn't get actively involved. I just listened, I watched what they did, uh, I asked questions when I needed to in terms of the process that they followed, how they track these clients, how they move them through the different stages. So I got a really good understanding of the whole process, which gave me that 
that education that I needed to then have a conversation with the stakeholders, the project managers. And the other thing I did was to give a regular update to the project managers because they hadn't had that before. They always had to ask for an update. You know, what was going on? What was happening? Whereas I thought, let's be proactive and let's tell them. Let's tell them what had been done during that day, what the next priorities were for the following days. If anything had gone wrong, be upfront about it, you know, confronted at that point. And it was after, I guess, a couple of weeks of doing this that the project manager said to me, I really, really appreciate you being here. I have absolute confidence and trust in what you say. And that kind of word really resonated for me because you don't get that often in analytics. Normally you get, oh, that was interesting data or thanks for the insight. You don't get words, things like confidence and trust. And it really, yeah, really resonated with me that I got to that position where I've, I was in that yeah, trusted advisor type capacity. And so the project yeah, continued. We got a lot more uh, confidence and uh, yeah, it was a successful outcome in the end. That's fantastic. Let's pick up on one of those phrases, which is trusted advisor. So it, it's very business speaky. How, how can we translate that? Because I think the idea behind it, the trust that you displayed or earned through that specific project, this is something that can help anyone who's yeah. working with data yeah. and who has clients or stakeholders on the other side of that. So can you explain more about what that looks like and yeah and I think we'll get from there into how you can actually go about building yeah, that sure. so I think ultimately the way I see it is someone having confidence to place their priorities in your hands if you like a lot of people especially in business and, and other areas will try and control things because maybe they don't uh, allow others in but if you can get to that position of being trusted they will allow you to see what their priorities are, allow you to uh, discuss their yeah, jeopardies, what things keep them awake at night. And it allows you to build that just back and forth communication that I think is often missing, yeah, certainly in data teams, where a lot of it is around reactive responses. So things yeah, that come to mind when I think about how I've judged myself as a trusted advisor, yeah, they ask you for advice, simple one but they're not telling you to do something. They're asking, should this be done? How would I go about this? Can I just run something by you? Those sorts of phrases really came to mind. Being invited to, to meetings before the project kicks off uh, is another really good example that they really want your input. They, they trust what you're going to say. And just other things like not imposing timescales. So it's really often you get a request come in and they say, I need it by the end of the day or the end of the week. But Towards the end, it's getting to the stage where they were asking for you, how long do you think this will take? And you can go back and you can say, well, I think this will take a couple of weeks. And their response won't be, oh, I want it sooner. It will be, yeah, I, I trust you, I judge your opinion. And I think that, yeah, a couple of weeks is absolutely fine. So it's really about being more in this partnership sort of role versus the like the teller and the doer, if you will. Definitely. I mean, it's very similar to a, to a really good consultancy type aspect where you, you build up that build up that relationship, like you say, that back and forth. And you can have a conversation on a, on a level, level playing field rather than this hierarchical server uh, master type approach. So you talked about some ways that you can gauge whether you have that. It sounds like a lot of them come back to being included. You're included in the meeting, you're included in the discussion, asked to brainstorm or give advice. 
Are there clear indicators of when you have not reached this point and might need to build to it? Definitely. I mean, one, one of the things that is often seen is when you work with data, you can often be seen in this kind of service type role. And with a service type role, you, know, you take things like uh, you know, restaurants or you know, emergency services. You're waiting for something to happen. You're waiting for someone to call you, waiting for someone to make an order. And then you react to that order, to that phone call. And that can be seen, I think, certainly in the data side. And if you respond to that, you can get into this process, this cycle, where all you're doing is responding, reacting to people's requests. And I think that isn't a great position to be in. One, because that will continue from uh, the stakeholder perspective. They will just keep asking and not really asking for input or asking for inequality. But two, from an analyst perspective, you don't really build up much confidence that what you're doing is yeah, justified or valuable to the business because you're just responding to instructions. But is that reactive piece, is that a necessary part of the progression? Because if you think of the analytical journey or mm -hmm. the development of an analytics team and capabilities, that is where it mm -hmm. starts, right? Definitely, definitely. And typical analytical journey, it, there's a few ways that this has been, uh, yeah, been talked about, but one way that I really like is four stages to the journey. You start off with the sort of descriptive stage. And what that is, is you're just producing maybe reports, dashboards about what has happened. So how many sales have we done? How many contacts have we made? How many clients do we have? So you're giving valuable information to the business, but it's all about what's happened in the past. If you can move on from that, you can look at the diagnostic. You know, why has that happened? So you're looking at your reports. There's a spike identifying and researching and explaining why that has happened. So the next stage, you get, you, know, you get a little bit more buy-in from the stakeholders with that. The third stage, the predictive. So this is where you can start to forecast using you know, trends, something as simple as you know, forecasting in Excel or just trend lines, run rates, that kind of thing. But all the way through to the really advanced data science, machine learning, AI, predictive models. That's all predictive, but you're trying to tell the stakeholders where do we think we're going. But the place to really try and get to, uh, and that's where I think you really get into this sort of trusted advisor type of space, is the prescriptive. What do I need to do? So you're telling your audience, what's your recommendation? What do you think the decision should be? What action should they take? You know, what conversation do we need to get started? And so as you talk about moving through these stages, from the descriptive, the what, the diagnostic, answering why, then getting into the sort of sexier analytics where you're now able to start to tell people things that they maybe didn't even know they wanted to know or that would be valuable, to then saying, all right, I've, I've done all of that, and now I know you, I know your business well enough, I know the context well enough that I can actually make smart recommendations about what you should do next or help guide that conversation or options to consider. In my experience, these are stages that you have to go through, right? Yeah. You can't jump from not having any data or analytics capability to suddenly being prescriptive to your stakeholders and tell them Absolutely. what they need to do. That's a recipe for failure. Yes. 
But you can't skip through these too quickly because you have to bring others around you along with you. Mm -hmm. So even if you as an analyst or you as an analytics team or function feel strongly about your ability to be able to move quickly into the predictive space, you still have to slow down oftentimes, I think, so that you can bring your clients and your stakeholders and the others that you work with along with you and so that you have that partnership right by the time you get there. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I've, and I've been with examples where we've tried to move too fast. Mm-hmm like you said, and you produce a, a really, say, a novel chart type or maybe something that's more more predictive or you begin to tell people what to do before you've learned that right, if you like. And, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't go well because there's that resistance to either accept a different chart type or, or why are you telling me what to do? You are just a, you know, a service function. So, no, you do have to build up that credibility. You have to justify and, and show that you know the business well enough, the thing that I always think with the analytical teams, data teams, is you've got to be an expert in data. So you might be a data scientist or an engineer or coder or visualization specialist. So you've got to know that side of things, which is really complicated in itself. But you've also got to know the business. And if you don't know the business, you can be a really great analyst, but you're just not going to get that credibility. So Researching the business, knowing the business is fundamental as well to building up through those stages. In the example that you shared in your story at the onset of the conversation, getting that context, right, getting to know the business was that part where you were sitting and observing and probably asking questions, which is one way to do that. Also makes me think of, so when I worked at Google on the people analytics team, we definitely went through this process that you described. The team came together and we started by just being descriptive and figuring out what data is there and what sense can we make of it? What new things can we learn? And that was very exciting for us, but to help that be as useful to the business was something that came later over time. And actually, when we got to the part where we're coming up with our own analyses and getting out of that reactive space and trying to get into the prescriptive piece and and helping guide those conversations and those strategies, we ended up actually changing the organization of the team and creating a new role that was, was the point of contact. Because we were the analytics team in the HR function, which meant we were trying to serve the human resources teams that then served the different parts of the business. And so it's this multi-layer thing. So by having a point of contact, and, and I played this role for many years, you know, I was part of the analytics team, but I was actually almost like an honorary member of the sales team. And which meant I sat in the HR that supported sales. I sat in their team meetings. I gave my weekly update to Leanne at the time who ran that group. And what that allowed for was to build this sort of partnership that you talk about, because that meant I could get an understanding of what sort of things they were dealing with and through them, what sort of things was happening in the sales organization, get that important context that I could then bring back to the analytics team. Then also, you know, I've got one foot on the analytics team in the analytics team and know what we're doing. And so rather than everything we're doing, just serving it up, I could pick and choose when and how I brought some of the more novel or new things in at times when it was more likely to be accepted or useful or needed. That is not a process that happens overnight. It, it takes isn't. time. It isn't. And there's some other ways. I mean, I guess if you're a little bit earlier on in that journey and 
you may be a, a more junior member of staff uh, and you've got a line manager that will typically go to these meetings. One thing that I found was really useful was just asking them, can I join this meeting? Even just in an observation capacity, because it's very often you would produce a piece of work that you're really proud of. You gave it to your boss, who then takes it into a meeting and the meeting's over, boss comes out and you say, well, how did it go? And they say, yeah, it's great. But what does that mean? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Or even worse, they say, yeah, it was great. Got a few follow-ups. I'll talk to you about it yeah, in the morning. And you then go to bed worrying, what does he mean, follow-ups? Have I got to do more work? I had a plan for tomorrow, but now it's going to be thrown into chaos because I've got to respond to these, these things. So just by going to these meetings, you can see, well, really, what are the priorities of the stakeholder? Did they really mean for that to be followed up? Or actually, is it just my boss kind of wanting to get a bit more credibility so he's asking for things that maybe don't need to be done but also you can see really what interests and what the priorities of the stakeholders are by being listen to what people are talking about and how they're talking about it you figure that's even easier probably today than it used to be when so many meetings are virtual and you could literally be a fly on the wall yeah definitely we had teams in uh, remote locations and they were often uh, sort of felt disconnected because they weren't able to go to the headquarters to have the meetings. But the minute with the pandemic, yeah, they were able to join these sessions. They were able to contribute far more. We saw a massive kind of morale increase by having these things virtually, where they were able to attend and participate. So getting feedback is important. And if there's a way to see how your work is being used and hear people talk about the topics that are related uh, helps, right, as you iterate and refine. For the analyst, what else can people do as they're trying to either work through these four stages that you described or as they're trying to form these sort of partners? Yes, I think, as I mentioned, the business knowledge is key. So can you increase your business knowledge either by uh, spending time it's spending time with your stakeholders but even if you can't do that there are things that, that you can do so business communications reading those uh time in the industry a lot of people that that i know had a really good knowledge about the company we work for but didn't know anything about the broader industry but knowing that kind of thing gives you that extra credibility it also builds up your confidence to have those discussions when you speak to a more senior stakeholders i remember networking events and I used to dread them and I got invited to one with some senior leadership it was a reward of doing a good piece of work but I saw it as here's the reward do something uncomfortable (laughs) exactly so it was this yeah this networking type thing but the reason I went is because it was a theatre trip so it was going to see a show in the West End so that was amazing and I thought if I could get through the networking bit I was seeing a nice theatre show and uh, I don't have to talk to anyone because it's obviously at the (laughs) theatre But uh, I went to this thing and I saw a couple of people and had a bit of an awkward small talk. But then as we got more into the evening, I had some really good chats with people and conversations that I never would have had in a business context. And we talked about more social things, but I guess got some really good relationships out of that. And ones that I'd almost now call friends rather than colleagues. And so just that social time is so important as well. If you can get that with stakeholders, it's not always possible, especially when it's more remote nowadays, but it's certainly really, really important if you can do that as well. Well, and I I think having those sort of interactions 
helps keep it personal in ways that's useful. That it's actually a person on the other end of it. Like you're not working with a stakeholder. Like you're working with Bob or Jill and you know that they like football or whatever the case may exactly. be. Exactly. And that's the thing because it's so easy, especially when it's virtual, just to go straight into a meeting and discuss the, you know, the meeting. But having that conversation beforehand, having that small talk beforehand, just you get to know them as a person. So you get to know then how you can respond to them. You get to know how they're feeling. You can read their body language. Are oh, you having a bad day? What's up? Yeah, you can have those conversations that just make it just far more personable than reacting to a business request. So we've talked about some things that an analyst can do, I think both to gauge where they're at in this process, as well as build that trust, form those partnerships. What sort of, I know you have managed a team and helped others do this. So for those listening who might be in a role where they're managing analytics team and want to help their team get this trusted advisor status, form partnerships, what advice do you have there? Any stories to share? Yeah. And a lot of it will be just trying to filter down those same aspirations. Yeah. Trying to get to know the stakeholders better, inviting my team members into team meetings, making the other thing I did as well was give my team or try to give my team a lot of responsibility. So rather than me going into a team meeting or a meeting with stakeholders with that particular member of the team, actually say to them, look, you can do this in the background once they were ready and comfortable, of course, but you know the background, you know what's going on. It's easy if you go in with someone else, certainly someone more senior, uh, that you default to them when you get questions or the stakeholders default to the senior person for questions. I've been in meetings with my boss and I've been presenting, but the stakeholder then addresses my boss when he wants to ask a question rather than me. And you feel a little bit devalued. So I think if you leave people to themselves, they will rise up, answer those questions. And then of course you have the feedback afterwards to go through that. So certainly. Well, and then just them knowing that they have your confidence going into that. That's a big thing. That you're going to provide air cover probably if needed. Right. Yeah, definitely. It's a huge thing. And so a lot of my team were actually just almost solely responsible for the pieces of work they were doing just with me adding that kind of oversight, as you say uh, at the start. So that was a big thing. I mean, the other thing I'd say is when your team's doing a piece of work, always ask, Kind of what else can you do? And a lot of our team was uh, providing dashboards and reporting. And so I'd often ask them, was there anything else you can add to this? Whether it be just by way of bullet point commentaries or a little bit of extra analysis on a piece of work. Because if you can send that to you know, the stakeholder along with the dashboard, it shows that you're, when you're thinking about their business, you're thinking about their priorities and just giving that extra lens rather than just churning out yeah, dashboard after dashboard. Well, and that can be a great way both to demonstrate how you can provide incremental value, which you can then ratchet up potentially over time, but also to get some of that feedback or insights from the people on the other end of it. Because if they say, oh, that was helpful, can you can you do that again? Or you don't do that the next time. They say, well, but where's the summary? Now you have a clear indication that somebody's looking for that and it was useful in some way. And then that can build in positive ways. Yeah. I remember there was a time we had a big... Uh, management program come in and there was this new concept of a dashboard and it was a concept of a t-bar and it was a landscape dashboard and there's a shape of a t and our metrics had to be laid out in the shape of a t because that's the analogy was if you're a pilot in an aircraft all your controls are directly in front of you or to the side so that was the concept so 
We redesigned this dashboard. We picked all, all the new metrics, all the relevant metrics. First time I went into the meeting to present this dashboard to the exact, exact leadership, it was an amazing session. Yeah, every metric we went through in detail, we had recommendations, we had, well, let's discuss that, or we should do something about that. It was amazing. Second week. Because it was fresh and was new fresh. and exciting. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Second week, well, we followed up from the first week. So all the outstanding actions, it was another great conversation. Four, five, six, seven weeks later, I was taking this dashboard in. Yeah, here it is again. <laughs> and, it was, and it was stale. There was yeah. nothing changing. So I began to not really enjoy the meeting. I, I almost began to go in there thinking, I hope it overruns this meeting so I don't get to say anything at the end or... Hope you get pushed off the agenda. Exactly, pushed <laughs> off the agenda or say things like, well, there's not much to talk about here, so, let, so we don't mind if we move on, that kind of thing. And I thought, that's no place to be in. So in the end, I began to take the dashboard, look at some of the key themes, look at what was interesting and build my own extra layer on top. So if it was contacts were low, well, actually look at why contacts were low and then bring things in in addition. So use the dashboard to figure out what could be interesting and then dig further into exactly. that, be able to bring those stories. Exactly. So it then became the meeting. Well, here's the dashboard. Not really going to talk about it, but it's there for context. But the thing I want to bring to you today is why contacts were low last week. And that formed a much better discussion. Every week felt different. And sometimes it didn't always work. Sometimes they said, no, we knew that. Didn't really need to worry about that. But it's still generated the conversation so that was a, another really good thing is can you get your dashboards done quickly and automated so you can then add the value afterwards mm -hmm. and then you know that people are paying attention right because you're actually there for the conversation and you continue to gain more of that insight of what do people care about what are they not what additional context are they bringing in or that you should be next time and that cycle can go in a really productive way Let's talk for a bit, though, about the non-productive sort of cycles. You, you mentioned one word early on that I wrote down and underlined, which is control. I guess we're talk we've talked about a number of scenarios where things are rosy and you do something and then at the end it all works out and everybody's friends and uh, valuing work. But there's the other side of that as well, right? Which is either before you get there or you've tried employing some of these strategies and you're still being met with resistance. So I can think of a specific anecdote back when I was working in the bank and we, we had a corporate analytics function and then we'd had analytics functions that sat in each of the business lines, which I think is a fairly normal setup. And one of these business lines had been relatively recently acquired. And so the people there understandably were very closed in terms of they didn't want to share their data. They didn't want to share where they got it from or how they got it or their definitions. They wanted to be the providers of that because that was their value. And you can understand why this happens, right? And especially going into a new organization where they don't know the people, they don't know the culture, they don't know what the plan is for that business unit. There's this fear of potentially, well, if I'm open, I might become obsolete. Somebody else might step in and do this role better or faster or whatever. But it leads into this really awful cycle of not sharing. And then then two people are from different teams are trying to do the same thing and the numbers come out different. And now you know, it's us versus them. And that can be bad because that's the knee-jerk reaction. But when you step back and think about it, or as you're hearing about a scenario like this, 
it, you, you really, you want to be open and share openly because that's how you can work together and build bridges instead of these silos. And you can see a lot of that with consultancies that come in as well sometimes. And so a consultancy comes in and they are on a particular project and you, and you have that, like you say, that defensiveness to say, well, could, we could do that. What's so special about this consultancy that have come in and you have to look at it in a different way and say, well, why has the management team decided to pay for this consultancy to come in? Because either they don't know what you can do and therefore you need to publicise yourself better, do a bit more uh, you know, PR, if you like. Or they just don't think that you can do that same you know, type of work, that same standard of work. So, yeah, promoting yourself as well, I think, is really important to avoid those issues that can come up. And, yeah, we've had examples where uh, consultancies came in and... Yeah, it got a bit defensive. Yeah, why should we send you the data? We've got it. We could do it. Um, but they say, well, we need it. And of course, they're sponsored by uh, pretty senior people. So often they, they win the argument and it gets a bit of a, a negative relationship at the start. And so then how do you overcome that? You overcome it simply by, by talking and trying to build that relationship. And often... When you see things like emails, you can't detect tone on them. Yes. Or you read worse, you read in a tone that may not be absolutely, present. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's it's so easy to do that. Or you see meeting requests come in without any context, you're immediately on the defensive. But oftentimes when you have that meeting and you get to know the real person and it's just a normal person and they've got their priorities and you can explain yours, that it becomes a lot better. So really it's just trying to build that relationship. There's nothing to scientific about it and then of course you can work with them and say well we could do this bit for you if you take on this other part actually form a bit of a partnership and i have seen it work really well as well when consultancies do come in give that nice overlay and that really good senior management relationship hand holding them through the process but the data team works with them it can work really well it's really really powerful A slight twist on this, but you made me think of it with the idea of a consultant coming in, somebody who is new to a team or new to an organization. I think there can be a tendency to want to prove value quickly, which sometimes takes the form of wanting to redo things that people have done before or show that you could do them better or faster in some way. And this can backfire also, right? Is there anything special that someone new coming into an organization or a team should do as they're trying to both build that sort of trust amongst their immediate team, but then through the partnerships beyond that as well? Yeah. I mean, I think when someone new comes in, often we have an onboarding plan of some description and that onboarding plan will be we'll learn a bit about the business maybe some technical things to go through learning the tool that maybe is being used in the business so there'll be some of that and always when we had someone new come in I wanted to be alongside them quite a lot of the time so I wanted to make sure I was there to support them literally like sitting side by side or it started that way and then with the pandemic it became virtual but yeah it was so much nicer to be in person and sitting side by side with someone because you could just glance over and just see which direction they're going in. But I didn't really have many occasions where someone would come in and try and take over. A lot of the time it was they were coming in to replicate reports or they were coming in to replace someone and so therefore the job pattern was quite similar. Where I did see some really good productivity though was people that came in who said, I don't really want to do this as my role. I want to do something more interesting. So I'm going to take this thing, 
in the way it was and I'm going to try and automate it or make it better. We used to do mailings to clients and the process was really long and really manual and you had to run loads of different steps in the you process. You said mailings? Mailings, okay. yeah. And I, I said to this guy, well, if you don't like doing it, try and make it quicker so you can actually do things you do want yeah, to make do. Make it a small part of your job. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And he took that absolutely took that on. So he learned how to code. He learned how to automate with yeah, various scripts and things like that. And he got this process so slick that he was able to spend much more of his time doing value-add things or what he yeah. perceived as being value-add things. Well, and that just going back right to the stages before, that's an important part of that as well, where you start out oftentimes as an analytics team or function being descriptive, figuring out what you don't know, starting to report out on that. But then the sooner you can, once you have general agreement on that, the sooner you can automate it, because then that allows you to continue to move up that cycle of now having time to be able to dig into the more interesting things and provide increasing value as a result of that the flip side to that is the people that don't want to do that because they see if you're reducing their work then their capacity is increased Uh, and yes they are they are they at risk from some kind of you know reclassification or or worse you know job losses and i think it's building that confidence in them that there's plenty more work there but it's much more value-added if you can get this dashboard automated or this process automated and I think there's this sort of comfort blanket that some people might have. There's a different skill set, though, right? As yeah. you move through Definitely. these different stages, and then individuals have to decide whether they want to move yeah. along with it yeah, for or sure. not. Yeah, for sure. Because some people just like producing reports, and they're quite happy doing that, and that's their job. But some people, yeah, like you say, just do want to move on and work. So another twist on a scenario that we've not talked about yet because much of this is we've talked a little bit about what can you do as an analyst but a lot of it's been team focused Mm -hmm. what about the solo analyst i can think of an example randy my husband when he was running hr at an organization in the bay area when he started, they didn't have anybody doing analytics on the people side because it's a relatively new idea that you know, that we should analyze people data too or that there's value that can come from that. But he, coming from Google, had, had seen this in action and knew the value of it and so hired the first people analyst on the team who actually didn't have a HR background. He was from the finance side. And so you come in, you know the data, you maybe don't have all the context you need either on the business or the subject matter. Where do you start there? Or what tips do you have for someone in that space when it comes to being successful and forging those sorts of partnerships that we've been talking about? Yeah, again, a lot lot of it goes back to my scenario where I said I just didn't almost didn't do anything for the first couple of days. Mm. It's just trying to absorb as much as you can in the first yeah, period of time you're there. So rather than getting too involved, because it's easy to get so involved in your work that you don't spend any time in developing. Uh, And so you can get wrapped up in the production element or producing the work. So learning about the business, speaking to people, almost taking a step back and absorbing the information. So then when you do go back with a piece of work, you know the context it sits in or you know the priorities of the people that you've been speaking to. Certainly would be areas that I would definitely focus on initially if I was to, a bit like when I started here, yeah, the first eight weeks is a lot of just listening and reading and watching videos. It's not 
doing a workshop on day one because you need to that would get be the, problematic it, right? would be a, it would be a challenge <laughs> it would be an interesting challenge yeah. but yeah you feel so much more comfortable after eight weeks because you've seen it in action you've watched it in action you've got the background the, the context behind these things so yeah it, it takes a while and i think a lot of teams do expect people just to come in and hit the ground running and I don't think that's very fair on a lot of occasions because yeah. you do need to build up that, that knowledge beforehand. Well, and sometimes there can be, you can do it in stages where I think for sure at first joining any new team or organization or project, you have to start out doing what you described, where you observe more than you speak and are a sponge and can take all of that in to understand the audience and the scenario and the constraints and why things have been done the way they've been done, because somebody decided that for some reason. And so gaining that context so that you don't do stupid things mm -hmm. is really smart. But after a little bit of that, then I think there is often value in understanding where is their low-hanging fruit? Where are there things that I might tackle that are going to be probably relatively easy, relatively low risk, that's both going to build my credibility as the analyst or in the function, but also build that confidence and, and make you feel like you're getting something done of value as you continue to gather more. And then that can build over time. Yeah. Sure. Certainly the lowest hanging fruit for me and what I said to the people was what, what extra information can you add to something yeah. whether it be a report whether it be a dashboard what, what else can you pick out and one example we had recently just before i left actually was a piece of work that we did a three-page report mm. and the stakeholder said can, can you give me some commentary on this and my team member said to me was well, do i have to i said well what, yeah why yeah why wouldn't you yeah why wouldn't you want it's to an provide opportunity not a <laughs> exactly yeah why wouldn't you want to provide this extra commentary and so they did and, and did a pretty good job and then a couple of weeks went past and they didn't get any response from the stakeholder. So the, the stakeholder didn't reply back and say, oh, great job, great commentary, thanks a lot for the insight, really useful. So they didn't do it the next time. Mm. But then as quickly as they sent it, they got the response back. Where's the commentary? Yeah. yeah. And, so, and that can sometimes be useful to take things away to see if yes, people value them. Exactly, exactly. But they, it really was valued just because they hadn't noticed it and appreciated it. I think... That can be the trouble, certainly in, in remote virtual world, is you don't always get the recognition that maybe you think you might deserve. Whereas if you're walking past someone in the corridor or handing them the report, they would obviously say this is really useful. And if you don't get that, you can feel a little bit isolated or disconnected. But it's important to know that what you are providing is useful is value-add and you should keep doing it. Well, and then there's an important lesson for the receiver in this too, Absolutely. which is when something is done that is helpful, be vocal yes. about that because that sort of feedback is useful and not always known <laughs> otherwise. Yeah. yeah, no one knows unless you say something. So yeah, so many times you got you get something back or you don't get anything back or what you do get back is sort of more questions or this is great, would be good if you could do this this is great, <laughs> kind of like, you know, in, in between. And yeah, you just feel a little bit devalued. So yeah, it's really important to, to keep up that momentum. And it comes back to communication. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me that much, nearly everything that we're talking about here really comes down to the people side of things, taking time to get to understand the context and the audience and their needs. And I'm totally generalizing here, but oftentimes those who are inclined to 
build roles for themselves or be in roles where they're mostly working with data aren't necessarily as comfortable on the, the people side of things. Your example of you know the resistance to providing commentary yeah. is a good Definitely. indication of this sort of thing. So what tips do you have or what might you share that could help someone who feels uncomfortable about some of the things that we've been describing get more comfortable and confident? Yeah, the best example for me is, do you know your subject matter really well? Because if you do, it, you're a lot more comfortable speaking about things you really know about or passionate about. Yeah. Yeah, it's easy to speak about yourself or yeah, your hobbies or interests because that's the, an area of passion. Can you get to that level with your work? So can you get to a level, if, even if it isn't passion necessarily, but even if it's a level of just knowledge, you know this content inside out and you can deal with any question that's asked of you without having to respond back, without having to go back. If you can get to so that becoming level, an expert. Exactly. Subject matter expert. If you can get to that level, then that gives you the confidence to go into the meetings, to speak to stakeholders about things and knowing that you can cover any eventuality that comes out. So that would certainly be a recommendation to, to try and get to that level. It doesn't mean you need to be an expert in everything, but if you are producing a, a report that you're going to take in and present, then make sure you know about how every metric is calculated. Make sure you know about there is a peak or a trough somewhere that you know why it happened. So even if you're not necessarily pulling out the information yet, you haven't got to that stage, you can answer the question if it comes up. Yeah. There can be benefit as well in that scenario. Going into the meeting, you need to know how to answer the questions, but where you may not have the context. And so figuring out how to build that context before you go to the meeting. And that oftentimes means talking to talking, people. Yes, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So I guess getting comfortable talking to people if you're not and asking smart questions and listening and really having an interest in understanding other people's perspectives and needs. It really is the people side of things that helps the analyst really be successful. Yeah, definitely. And also the other uh, advantage of going in before or speaking to someone before a meeting is you can talk through the thing you're going to present. And, and so you can get some feedback and you either get feedback that might mean changes, which depending on the timing may not be great if you're just about to go in. But if you do get feedback beforehand, you can make changes. But the other thing that's really useful is to get some buy-in, especially if you're going to quite a senior environment. If you can pick off one or two of those members and say, look, I'm going to produce this, I'm going to recommend this, or I'm going to talk through this. Yeah, what do you think? And if they come back and say, yeah, great idea, I think that'd be really good. I'll back you in the meeting or support you. That or even you just that. be like leaning forward and nodding yeah, when you're saying these things interest. when we meet. Yeah, yeah, showing some kind of interest in it would give you that confidence that, yeah, what I'm about to say is at least supported by some of you. And if they've got persuasive powers over the rest of their peers, they can help you know, direct the conversation the way you want it to go. And, and this is something that's useful in many occasions, figuring out where are there influencers who you can bring around to share your view so that the conversation goes in the direction that you hope it will. And it's such, a, it's such a confidence boost to go into a meeting knowing that there's a few people in there that have seen what you're going to do and, yeah, support it. There's nothing like it. Well, rather than going completely cold and you're not sure how it's going to come off and you've done something a bit novel maybe or you're about to recommend something for the first time, yeah, you just got no idea. That's risky. It's risky, yeah. It's risky and it's pretty nerve-wracking. So 
whilst you want to focus all your attention on the presentation, having confidence in doing that, you're also back of your mind thinking, what if someone derails this or asks an awkward question I can't answer? So, yeah. So building those bridges, those relationships ahead of time, and yeah, just the the talking through it. You mentioned this in passing, but that in and of itself ahead of time can be so useful at then helping the, the big meeting or the big project go well in your final delivery. So I'm curious in your thoughts, like pivot here, and I definitely have opinions here, but what role does visualizing data play in all of what we're talking about? That's a, that's a really great question. And I could spend probably a bit of time on this. We had, we had uh, some interesting conversations where I used to work about data visualization and whether you know, it should be a, a role in its own right, whether it should be part of a general analyst role. If it was part of a general analyst role, how much time should be focused on it? And we went through various cycles. We went through this kind of cycle where, yeah, you had these d- different stages. So you got the data, you pass it to someone else to analyze the data, you pass it to someone else to oh, that makes me visualize nervous. the data. <laughs> and yeah, but then you get that, okay, that's my specialty. And I'm going to pass it on to someone else's factory. I but guess, the, yeah, you're just like approach. a cog, passing yeah. cogs in the process. There's something about the spirit that runs risk of really yeah. getting lost there. Absolutely, absolutely. And you think, but then you think, it's become so broad now, the industry is so specialized in certain areas that can you be great at all of those parts or do you need to focus in on some parts? And that's when you get sort of data specialist roles come in. So then you get the data engineers, you get the data scientists. So then you think, well, again, what part does the visualization, is it the data scientist supposed to visualize it or do you create a data visualization specialty role? But then what do they do other than data visualization if they've got no context on how it was right. born? And then who actually tells the story? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And who, and, who, and who presents it at the yeah. end? So we came to the agreement that, yeah, you need some specialism, certainly in data science, data engineering, because they are such complex topics now, so, uh, so sort of focused. But the analyst role can still do a bit of data science, can still clearly manipulate the data, but still needs to have that specialism of yeah, visualizing it and being able to present and you know, tell that story. And we, I think we got to a pretty good place in the end, certainly within our team of, of that, that mix. Because like you say, you don't want to have to take a piece of work and pass it on because there's no value there to just... It, it's not that. fulfilling to the yeah. individual, right? Yeah, exactly. You just, yeah, you are just part of a factory process. So I think owning the data, owning the story, owning the analysis behind it, visualizing in a way talking to the stakeholders all those parts we talked about and then presenting it and then being in the room to get the feedback well it's a great piece of work if you've done it well and even if the direction goes maybe differently in a different direction than you anticipated going in because i think this catches people sometimes where then it feels like oh that work was for not and it's like no that work still helped people make a smarter decision it may not have been the one that you thought that they should make but that's where you know other people are coming in with different perspectives and context and for me if it's driving the right sort of discussion and data is being considered in the way that helps that then that's a win even if things go in a different direction than maybe was intended or anticipated i think then that's the importance of if you're not if you're not necessarily at the end the process is the communication from whoever was at the end to say look thanks to everyone that's played their part in helping pull this together right from the engineers putting the data to those analyzing it that you've all been part of this and you all should be recognized in the same way not just the person at the end who's 
done the visualization or done the actual you know, presentation. So it's really important because from a team morale perspective to include everyone in that, in that uh, recognition for sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So then I think this is a good point to recap some of the main like we've covered a lot in a relatively short amount of time. So, you know, one is just the value that you can have as an analyst or bring to your team as you work through the the stages that you talked about in an analytical environment and really form partnerships and become this trusted advisor. What are the top tips thinking back over the conversation we've had that you would leave people with today? top tips would be certainly as you approach it is to just absorb yourself in the business so get to know the business get to know uh, the context around it get to know the stakeholders priorities yeah what keeps them awake at night try and involve yourself in meetings with those stakeholders to see the conversations rather than be part of the actions that are delivered after that so those are the sort of pre-work if you like but once you get into that and get a little bit more of that confidence and you're speaking directly to those stakeholders yeah, ask, ask some questions. Br- bring that relationship up to a level par. Ask some questions. Why do you think this is important? Why do you want to do this? Tell them no occasionally to, to bring that level up to, okay, he's, he's telling me no because he's actually got some justification. He's got some credibility. I, I don't mind that. So those kind of things I think are really important as you progress the relationship. And then obviously as then you present, you show that credibility. You've got the, customer, the stakeholders buy-in because you've spoken to them beforehand uh, and the presentation goes well because you've got the confidence from having the knowledge, you've got the confidence from having the stakeholders buy-in and input and you've just presented something that, that really is value-add and you're in that prescriptive space where you're recommending things rather than just delivering you know, what we've done type reporting. Yeah, and I'll just underscore one of the things that we've talked about uh, throughout the conversation, but that's just to talk to people, right? Uh, Because open communication, asking questions, really actively listening to the answers and the context that other people bring to the conversation is always going to serve you well as an analyst and in forming these sorts of partnerships. It's great to be inquisitive and curious about things. Yeah. So before we close, I'll mention that registration is open for our Q2 2022 virtual public workshops. Our classic foundational workshop will be offered in a four-hour format split over two days on May 4th and 5th. We'll also be offering publicly for the very first time a session that's been quite popular with our clients. It's called Craft the Narrative. And that is a hands-on practice session where we lead participants through the low-tech planning process with their own projects. That'll also be a four-hour session split over two days on May 11th and 12th. That's 2022. Uh, Space in both of these sessions is limited, so I definitely recommend registering early to secure your spot. More details and registration can be found at storytellingwithdata.com slash workshops. For those who might be listening later, you'll find the current schedule posted there as well. As a special thank you for listening, you can use the code podcast 10 that's podcast one zero during the registration process for 10% off the listed prices that code also works at our storytelling with data shop where we currently have custom mugs and craft roasted coffee you'll find that at storytellingwithdata.com slash shop simon thank you for joining me behind the microphone today thank you very much been an absolute pleasure to be here 
And with that, be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and our YouTube channel. Also check out all the great resources at storytellingwithdata.com. Thanks very much for listening.